Hi, uh, thanks for coming today. Uh, we're, today we have um, Lee Talbot here to talk about Blinky Palermo's use of textiles, and he is the Associate Curator of the Eastern Hemispheres Collection at the Textile Museum here in Washington. And um, recent exhibitions that he's done there include Art by the Yard, Women Design Mid-Century Britain, um, and Second Lives, the Age-Old Art of Recycling Textiles. And um, right now at the Textile Museum, um, his exhibition Green, the Color and the Cause just opened last weekend. And um, he's also on the editorial board of the Textile um, Journal of Cloth and Culture. And... Um, has been a juror for the American Tapestry Alliance and the World Textile Art um, Biennial. And um, so I'll give it over to him now. Thanks. All right, so thank you all for coming this afternoon and joining me to look at a selection of artworks by the seminal German artist Blinky Palermo. Now, I'm not an expert on Palermo, and indeed, I'm not an expert on 20th century German art. Uh, but as Jenny mentioned in her introduction, I am a specialist in textiles, and as we'll see, textiles are an integral component of some of Palermo's best-known work. Um, Palermo is known as an artist's artist. Um, he's highly regarded uh, by uh, his peers, um, by younger generations of artists. Um, and this is the first retrospective of his work in North America. So I'm very excited to have the opportunity to spend some time with this work and think about it in relation to some, uh, some ideas that I've been exploring more closely in my research, uh, namely textiles as art, uh, mid-20th century textiles as expressions of uh, society and culture at the time, and also color in textiles and how and why people created uh, these, these colors. Um, Joseph Boys, who was Blair, uh, Palermo's teacher, uh, very famously described Palermo as being an artist with great porosity. And by that, he meant that he had a very open approach um, uh, and, and interest in, in open dialogue um, and exchange. And so with that in mind, I would like to think that Palermo uh, would welcome porosity in the interpretation of his work as well. Um, and so today, uh, I'll be telling you about uh, his work um, from the perspective of a textile historian, but I hope that it might encourage you to look at his work and, and appreciate his work uh, uh, in, in new ways. Um, are many of you familiar with Palermo, with his, his biography? Um, I know some are, some are shaking their heads that they're not. Um, this isn't really, uh, this tour won't really be a traditional history of Palermo, critique of him. I'll just say a couple of things about him. Um, he was born in 1943 in Leipzig. Um, he uh, originally, uh, well, growing up he was adopted. He was named Peter Heisterkamp. Uh, but he went, when he was at the Dusseldorf Kunst Academy, which at that time was just really a, a cutting-edge art academy, and as I mentioned, his teacher, uh, Joseph Boys, um, Boys reportedly said something to him like, if you want to change your manner, you have to change yourself. Uh, and he adopted a pseudonym. Um, he adopted the name uh, Blinky Palermo, who is an actual person. Uh, he was a mafioso uh, Italian-American um, uh, boxing manager. And it's significant that he took an American name uh, because he was, uh, he was very influenced by American uh, culture, beat literature, uh, and such. 
So um, I'm starting in this room because uh, Palermo primarily thought of himself as a painter. And um, in this room, uh, I, w the way I interpret it is um, he's looking at painting, uh, he's distilling it down into its most essential elements, and he's asking what is painting and indeed what is art. Um, he was pursuing abstract painting at a time when abstract painting was starting to lose steam, people were starting to question uh, its relevance. So uh, in Western uh, post-Renaissance art, um, painting and sculpture generally are, uh, are privileged as the highest of the arts. Um, and a painting generally is defined as a, uh, it usually has a wooden frame, a stretcher of some kind. It has a textile stretched over it. And then the artist uses a brush uh, to apply a pattern. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. And why don't you get a little bit closer so that you can see it. Um, so this is more like a conventional painting than what we will be seeing um, in, in other rooms in the exhibition. But if you look at it carefully, you see there's a distortion at the bottom. Um, he actually used for the wooden frame of this a chalkboard. Um, and then he stretched uh, the linen fabric over that. And my take on this is just that um, he's, he's showing us each part that goes into making the painting. There is a base for the painting, a wooden base. Here it's screaming out its presence by actually jutting out uh, past the, the picture frame with the ledge on the bottom. And then of course there is a textile. In this case it's actually a very fine linen. Um, artists around the world prefer uh, textiles as a surface for their painting. Now usually they're completely covered in paint and you forget about the textile element there. But here he's actually left part of the linen blank. Um, he hasn't gessoed it, it's just a raw textile. You can see the warp and the weft um, there. And then uh, he's used um, oil paints to apply uh, this black pattern. And again, he's making it very apparent. Um, he's, you can see the hand of an art, the artist, you can see the drag of the brush. Um, uh, so each part, each part of the painting um, is made uh, very distinct. He's making visible all the means of making a painting. Um, and in this work, um, he's taking all those elements and he's kind of uh, deconstructing them. Um, we see these long uh, 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 wooden uh, pieces, which can be used, say, for a frame, for instance. Um, these have been wrapped in a textile uh, and then painted. So, and then in the middle there is a little hint of maybe what a traditional uh, uh, painting surface uh, might be like. Um, so again, he's taking all the elements, the traditional elements that are used in a painting, but he's rearranging them um, uh, in this way. Um, a little further down the wall, you'll see uh, when you turn the corner there, um, a similar idea, but he's taken a found object. Uh, it's the one that has a corner, um, and uh, this is an architectural piece, um, possibly uh, a window frame. Uh, and in any case, a found object 
that again he has wrapped it in a, a textile, he's wrapped it in canvas, and then painted it in these sharply contrasting colors. Now, all the pieces that I've been talking about uh, so far are untitled. Um, it's unusual for him to give a title uh, to, to a work, um, but one that is titled um, is this piece, uh, which is called the, the English name for it, Landscape. Um, and again, uh, he is using found wood, he's using found objects uh, that he has wrapped in textiles, and then he is painted, and he's arranged them in this spatial uh, relationship that suggests a landscape. We have green below and uh, blue on top. Um, but if you look carefully on the, in the lower portion, um, you can see a little bit of the original fabric showing through. Um, he's covered this uh, wood with a, with a blue fabric and then painted over it with green, but a little bit of the blue is showing through. And again, um, it is creating these uh, sort of spatial relationships um, that suggest a landscape. Um, but he's doing it with these long horizontals, this horizontal line, and keep that in mind because that's a point that we will be returning to when we get to, uh, to the staff builder. But again, he's using the same formula, uh, the essential elements that traditionally go into a painting, a wooden base, a textile, and then over that is applied uh, paint. So let's just go around the corner. Uh, we'll look at one more piece in these galleries before going to look at the staff builder. Um, I do want to say uh, that one thing I didn't emphasize before, that he had a very short career. Um, he was active 12 or 13 years or so. Um, the works that we're looking at were all created in a space of less than a decade. And he was working um, simultaneously in many different modes. So I don't want to imply that we're starting at a beginning point and then going through time to an end point. Uh, a lot of these are ideas that he was, that he was working through um, um, simultaneously. And he left several uh, distinct groups of work, um, the works uh, that are um, more three-dimensional that are on the wall without a background he called objects and then the works that are made primarily with cloth he called a stuff builder or, or cloth paintings and what we're looking at here is kind of a combination uh, of these two um, this is called uh, well the English translation in this exhibition is um, soft speaker um, I won't attempt the uh, German uh, pronunciation, uh, but it implies whispering, speaking softly. Uh, and on top, you see a found fabric that has been pinned to the wall. And then below it is the same fabric that has been stretched over a frame, more like a traditional painting. And at least my interpretation of this is the, re the reason why it, to me, it, it makes sense to call this soft speaker because I think these are in a dialogue with, with each other. They're, they're speaking to, uh, to each other. Now, uh, for some people at the time and even today, uh, it's a little bit um, shocking uh, to take just a plain piece of cloth and put it on the wall, uh, pin it on the wall, um, and call it art. 
Um, but of course, I'm a textile historian. To me, that uh, makes perfect sense. Um, textiles uh, surround us uh, in our daily lives. Um, they can bring a lot of beauty in into interiors. Um, and I think this is what he's he's getting at with here: um, a plain piece of found cloth. Um, a more traditional piece uh, of cloth that has been um, uh, that has been put over a frame or over a stretcher. Um, we can derive uh, visual pleasure, sens- sensual gratification um, from both of these. Uh, it doesn't have to be put in a traditional painting format. So now, uh, if you'll follow me through, that we'll go through the next gallery and then into the following gallery, uh, which are the uh, where you'll find the cloth paintings. All right. So in 1966, um, Palermo embarked on his largest uh, and best-known body of work, which are called the Stoff Builder or cloth paintings. Um, for these, um, he, uh, the source material comes directly from uh, department stores. Um, this is commercial cloth uh, sold by uh, the Bolt, um, and he has just taken these, sewn them together, and put them on uh, to a stretcher. Um, at the time, uh, a good friend of his uh, was the artist Gerhard Richter. Um, and they would both go on, uh, they would go on shopping expeditions together. Um, uh, Palermo was very interested in looking at fabrics. Uh, Richter uh, was fascinated with the color charts that he found in, uh, in paint stores and carpentry stores there. Uh, but what they're both, in, both looking at is finding anonymous, ready-made source material. And then using that and, and using that uh, in their art. Uh, so how how exactly were they made? Well, he would buy these uh, the, these um, these cloths, take them to his studio. Uh, he would arrange them on the floor um, and get exactly the right uh, color combinations that he liked, um, the right proportions between the various colors. Then he would pin them. Uh, and then have them sewn and stretch uh, and put onto uh, a stretcher. Now, at the beginning, he did sew them himself, uh, but he was not very good with a sewing machine, um, so he called upon his first wife, Ingrid, to do the sewing, uh, and then later, um, Gerhard Richter's wife, uh, Emma, also would, would do the sewing as well. So the colors are determined uh, by what he found um, available in mostly in, in Dusseldorf uh, department stores. Um, the maximum proportions are also determined uh, by the, the bolts of cloth that, that he would find. Um, it's the DIN, the Deutsche Industrie Norm, uh, dictated exactly the size uh, that these bolts uh, of cloth would be. So they... Um, they seem very simple uh, in many ways, and in fact, one of his um, uh, one of his friends, uh, the artist Sigmar Polka, said, uh, "This is a quote by him. It says, while others were toiling away at I don't know what, he sewed two pieces of fabric together and had the day off." Um, but as simple as they might seem, uh, they're addressing many uh, concerns uh, that Palermo had at the time, uh, namely. Uh, uh, the German economic miracle, uh, the role of modernist painting at the time. Um, 
and uh, also the, the modern art market um, in Germany. Um, Boys, Joseph Boys, his uh, teacher, um, who was a, a very influential artist and still is today, I'll read a quote from him. He says that Palermo was, he's interested in the way people live, the way they live in space. Human habitation, that was very important to him. The way they inhabit, the way they live, what chairs they sat in, uh, what they have around them. So I think that these cloth pictures really capture that. Um, they capture, to me, so very much the time uh, in which he was living, um, and they directly uh, mirror a consumer culture at the time. So even though he was going to department stores and finding these colors ready-made, these colors were actually carefully thought out uh, by the manufacturers of textiles. Um, these, uh, the, the time has a lot to do with the uh, German economic miracle after the war. Um, of course, like all of Europe, Germany had been destroyed. They were very dark years during the war, uh, in the rebuilding years. But we're talking now in the mid-1960s, they're starting to uh, have a lot of... Uh, uh, there's money available, and it's often called, you know, the, the economic miracle. Textiles were a part of that. Textiles were a huge uh, industry in Germany. Not for long. They would start to move uh, in, in the early 70s. And these companies, of course, would want to create textiles that people wanted to buy. They used colors. They produced colors that were fashionable, that were sellable at that time. And at this time, the preference was for bright, bold colors. Um, this mirrored the, the optimism at the time. Uh, uh, and you, don't, you see it not just in Germany, but indeed um, all, all over uh, Western Europe. Um, so these colors are mirroring the sort of buoyancy, um, the optimism that you see in, in German society at, at this time. But also, uh, it's, it's uh, mirroring what we also see um, in advertising at the time. These very, uh, these geometric shapes, these sharp delineations of color um, are certainly what was popular in, uh, in advertising uh, in the 1960s as well. And it's also mirroring what we uh, see in fashion at that time. Uh, the name that we most closely associate with these, these blocks of color um, is the French designer Courage, uh, but there were many, uh, there were many others uh, as well. And I do have um, some visuals for you. Um, if you want to pass these around. Um, these are images of a photo shoot um, that was taken in front of uh, Palermo's early uh, stoff builder are cloth paintings. And you can see that these 60s fashions um, provide a, a, a perfect foil um, for uh, these, uh, these, these cloth paintings, these bright, sharply contrasting planes of color. Now, interestingly, uh, what you see in the background there are some of his early um, cloth paintings uh, that he actually destroyed. Um, some of the earlier ones were smaller in format than you see here. Um, and also, many of the earlier ones were made of shiny materials uh, such as uh, satins. And uh, he didn't comment on this. We don't know why. Uh, I would speculate um, that uh, 
with satins, um, there is a sheen, light catches this, um, and it downplays the sharp contrast uh, between the two color planes. <clears throat> what he used almost exclusively uh, to the end is a balanced plain weave cotton, uh, which gives a very nice uh, texture. Um, there is no sheen on it, so it gives a very sharp uh, demarcation between uh, the two planes um, of color. And of course, these are very uh, these are very decorative. Um, they they looked good in homes um, at the time. And uh, I'll read a quote from one uh, critic. Um, it said that he couldn't decide. Let me find it here. Whether he was uh, a painter, uh, an interior decorator, or a cold modernist. Um, but indeed, uh, I do think that he had uh, interior decoration in mind. Um, they look very uh, good in homes. The way that they were hung very low and the way that they're hung in this gallery is similar to the way that he would, uh, he hung them in, in galleries. Um, the large size, um, uh, they are usable. They're something that people could conceive um, using and, and decorating uh, in their home. Um, some of the earliest ones uh, were divided uh, vertically like this. Um, but over time, uh, uh, he went exclusively to these horizontal um, divisions. And uh, there, there may be many reasons for that. Um, having this, um, this vertical division, uh, the left and right eyes kind of go in different directions. Um, you get a, a greater harmony <coughs> with these um, horizontal divisions. But I think that there's more than that um, as well. Um, when we looked at the piece in the other room called Landscape, you saw that there was just two, uh, two uh, pieces of wood put together, and it creates this uh, horizon line that creates the look of a landscape. And I think that he must have had this in mind as well. Certainly when we look at this one, for instance, with green on the bottom and blue on the top, um, it does give uh, the impression of a landscape. And in fact, many of his classmates called him a landscape painter, uh, somewhat jokingly. Uh, but also um, in the late 1960s, around the time that he was doing these, he also did um, a series of seascapes. And in those seascapes, you also see uh, the only hint of the sea is just a thin uh, horizontal line. So I think that this is something that he um, that he certainly does have in mind. And of course, uh, these colors were, were popular colors that were produced at the time, but um, all of them probably had some sort of implications at the time as well. Um, I'm particularly drawn to this one, um, which is two shades of green. Uh, today is Earth Day, uh, so it is um, appropriate that we should be, uh, be looking at that one. But uh, one question that I have about it that I, I uh, certainly wish that we could find out, um, well, his teacher was Joseph Boys, as I've said a couple of times. Uh, Joseph Boys was a founding member of the Green Party. Um, right about this time, uh, the Green Party wasn't founded yet um, when he was making these, um, but these ideas were being formulated and... Uh, and um, Palermo was very much a part of Boise's uh, milieu um, at the time. So you really wonder if uh, 
if there is any sort of connotations of what we think of as green uh, with this green uh, with this green on green one. Uh, these were very, um, as I mentioned, these were popular. They sold well uh, for many reasons. I said they fit well in interiors at the time. They were colors that were popular at the time. Uh, landscape is the most popular type of painting, and these have this hint of landscape. Um, and also in uh, Germany at this time, uh, American painting was uh, was popular as well. And he certainly um, is having is making these references to uh, to American painters. Uh, I think most significantly when we look at pieces like this um, to Mark Rothko. And uh, whereas Rothko um, had these sort of shimmering planes of color uh, that had some sort of hint of, uh, of depth. Um, we're getting a much sharper division uh, with these cloth paintings. Uh, but in ones like this, there is a little bit more ambiguity. Is it two colors or is it three? And so it gives a, uh, this, sort of, uh, this sort of Rothko-like effect. Um, so, uh, in conclusion, I'd just like to say that um, I think that Palermo, in the way that he um, brought together uh, popularism um, and uh, the, the market, um, looking at interior design at the time, uh, he opened up uh, new forms, uh, new materials uh, for new generation of artists. And also, uh, in his use of textiles, um, I applaud him uh, for that as well. Um, textiles are, they're ubiquitous in our daily lives. You know, they surround us uh, from the time we're born till the time we die. Um, as clothing, as upholstery, uh, drapery, they're, they're around us. And incorporating textiles uh, into his work, um, as he's done here, um, he is, uh, he's showing that there don't have to be divisions uh, between uh, high art and everyday life. He's showing us that art is in the intention and in the creativity of the artist, and beauty is in the eye of the beholder um, and uh, not exactly in the materials uh, that he might be using. So, thank you very much for coming. So, do you have any questions? Do you think there's also a reference here to German Romantic landscape painting, which has, you know, this history of German art in the 19th century, you know, there's so much I think you, that, that you may be right. Um, as far as I know, um, he never commented, or we don't have... Um, recorded comments of Palermo about uh, the, the Stoff Builder series and why he was doing this and, and, and much information about that. But um, I just think when you look at these and you look at some of his other works and some of his other works that he is directly uh, uh, looking at landscape, even naming it landscape or calling it a series of landscape, you can certainly see the parallels there. So I, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, I think it's roughly, roughly, and as I mentioned that he's working in, in many modes simultaneously. Um, so some of the wor works that we looked at when I was first uh, talking uh, were made around the same time as some of the ones that we see here. But um, when you get to the end of the exhibition tree there, that is, um, that is the end of his career. And uh, what's his relationship with Montreal? It looks like he's leaving behind um, that's right. That's right. Um, I certainly early on he was he was very much uh, uh, he he admired Mondrian. He traveled to Amsterdam. He looked at a lot of his works there, and you certainly see the influence. And I certainly see, it, especially in the first painting, when you walk in the exhibition space, you certainly can see this uh, uh, this sort of homage to Mondrian. But I think as time goes on, um, he's going in his own he's going in his own directions as well. Uh, his career was short. He died tragically um, at the age of 33. Um, and so whereas some of his close uh, friends at the time, uh, Sigmar Polka, <coughs> Gerhard Richter, um, they became much more well-known because they outlived him by decades. Um, whereas he, uh, he, he died very young. So in this exhibition, you're not seeing a full arc of a career, a beginning, a middle, and then an end. Uh, you're seeing uh, a very creative career cut short perhaps mid-career, I don't know, yeah. Um, given that these textiles were just off-the-shelf consumer products, they weren't necessarily meant to last for 40 years. Affected the way that these pictures Yes, I'm glad you brought that was something I was meant to say, um, is that as a textile historian, I know uh, textiles don't last. And certainly these were mass produced. They, they're okay textiles, they're not fine textiles. They were never meant to last more than, you know, a decade or so. People would use them for interior uh, decoration. Ten years or so later, um, take them down and, and redecorate. So uh, dyes certainly fade over time. Um, any dyes are going to fade over time. Uh, so the colors that you're looking at here, I would be very surprised if these were actually the colors they were when he produced these in the 1960s. Um, it depends on how much exposure they've had to light. If they've been completely in the dark, uh, they might not have faded as much. Um, but we do need to keep in mind that, yes, these colors are probably more muted, actually, than what, he, uh, th than what they originally would have been. Yeah, but I, I'm surprised that they're in such good condition, and I think that may is probably because many of them went into uh, uh, museum collections early and uh, are are being very well taken care of. D I N Deutsche Industrie Norm, and they sort of set the uh, the standard like a textile must be you know, this certain width uh, for, for manufactured products, the, the dimensions, yeah. And of course he could make ones that are smaller than that, but uh, the width the, would determine the, the maximum size that he could ever achieve with this type of painting. So how is the fabric arranged on the picture plane relative to how it would have been on the vault of fabric? Can you 
Yeah, well, that's an interesting point, too. You know, in talking about the, the disposition of the textiles, whether they're vertical, like you see there, or horizontal, um, uh, when these would have been sold in department stores, they would have been rolled out vertically because you uh, roll it out and measure it as it goes along. You don't do that horizontally. You roll it out so that it's always right directly in front of you, and you do that horizontally. Um, so this horizontal orientation of these, it's also mimicking the way that you would have looked at them in a department store as well. They would have been laid out in front of you horizontally, not, not vertically. So while there is perhaps that landscape reference, there's also the possibility that this uh, arrangement is also mimicking the, uh, the commercial aspect, uh, the fact that these are uh, bought in a department store. Great Carl now has Miramico fabrics all on, on stretchers, and they're selling them as art for young professionals and partners. That's right, that's right, yeah. That doesn't surprise me at all because, you know, I'm a textile historian. I do look at textiles as art. Um, we should keep in mind that uh, before the Industrial Revolution, textiles were uh, among the most precious objects that people had. An enormous amount of time and labor goes into creating uh, textiles. And so, you know, for centuries, uh, so much um, uh, artistic uh, effort uh, would go into creating to creating these these pieces, and we've lost track of that a bit. Um, uh, certainly, in in this age of, of mass-produced and machine-produced textiles. Yeah. All right. Any other questions? All right. Thank you all for coming on this rainy day.